as we begin a new year, we're also beginning a new study. We're going to be spending the next chunk of time in the book of James. Uh, and the book of James is an interesting book when you look at kind of its history and the way it came about. Uh, Martin Luther actually was not a huge fan of the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw. And his biggest complaint is that as you look through the book of James, you will not find a proclamation of the gospel anywhere in it. Doesn't talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he kind of put it on a lower tier. But one of the great things about the book of James is that it is just so practical. You know, we just went through the book of Galatians, and we spent so much time laboring over the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. That it is not of works, lest any man should boast, and that you can't add anything to the gospel. And if you add anything to the gospel, well, then you don't have the gospel anymore. And Paul pushed that point over and over and over and over again. And now we come to the book of James, and James is going to take all of those truths that we learn in the book of Galatians, and he is going to bring them right down to earth. And he's going to say, this is how you practically live out your faith. Because the faith that we live is not some intellectual pursuit. It's not some philosophical ideal. The gospel that we proclaim is a truth that radically changes and impacts the way we live every single day. And so that's what James is going to hit. Uh, the book of James, uh, most likely written by James the Just, who is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that James was an apostle because if you look in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the 500, and then he also appeared to James. And it mentions that encounter. Interestingly enough, James was not a believer while Christ was performing his ministry. He rejected Jesus in his claim as Messiah. Uh, and it wasn't until after the resurrection when we see Christ appear to James in the flesh that suddenly he believes. It would kind of be hard to deny if, you know, your brother shows up after his death and starts talking to you, right? So in that moment, James becomes a believer. He actually becomes a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, you look in the book of Acts when you have the Jerusalem council take place. There's lots of arguments about should the Gentiles who are being saved be circumcised? And a council comes together, and it's really James who weighs in on that issue, and it gives a lot of input into that discussion and that decision. And so we see James is a prominent figure in the church. Uh, in fact, when Paul, in the book of Galatians that we looked at, he's talking about how he came to Jerusalem, and the only people he met with were the pillars of the church, Peter and James. And so we see James is a big deal in the early church in Jerusalem. And as we look at the book itself and who it's written to, James begins his letter saying that it's written to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. See, as James looked out on the landscape of the early church, he saw that there were believing Jews that were kind of scattered all around Palestine of that time. And you see... The reason for that is we actually look back to the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples, the apostles, they've received the Spirit. They're, they're speaking in tongues. They're preaching with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says that there are 3,000 people who come and hear the gospel and are saved. Now, the vast majority of those people were Jews who were living in different regions and different lands, and they all spoke different languages, they had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. 
And as they gathered in, they heard the gospel. And well, what happens when you go to a foreign place to celebrate? Well, eventually you go home. And that's what happened to a lot of the thousands of people who had gathered in Jerusalem. They gathered in Jerusalem. They heard the apostles' teachings. They believed in Jesus Christ. But then eventually they started to go back home where they came from. And as they went back home where they came from, they carried the gospel with them. And so as they carried the gospel with them, James sees all of these Jewish believers spreading out among the land. And eventually reports begin to come back about how they're living and what they're doing. And James begins to see that something is wrong. And so he pins a letter, and that's the letter that we're going to be spending the next several weeks looking at. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Today we are going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we see here that the text says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we've mentioned before, James addresses this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It's the prominently Jewish audience that he is writing to. He's writing to Jewish believers who have now spread out all over Palestine. And it's interesting that he mentions the idea that they are part of the dispersion. That they're out, they're spread away, they're far from Jerusalem. And you've got to kind of understand the landscape of the church at this time period. I mean, the center focal point of Christianity during this early part of the church history, probably this letter's written about 45 AD. And so early on, really the epicenter of the Christian movement was Jerusalem. It's where the apostles were. It's where Christ was resurrected. It's where the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ first began to spread. And so you have this kind of real hotbed of activity taking place in Jerusalem. And then you have all of these people beginning to be scattered all around the face of the earth. And just think of what it was like to be a Jewish believer in Christ during that time period. We have such a huge benefit as we sit in the church today because we have the complete canon of Scripture. We have the full revelation of God as laid out for us in the Bible. If you were a Jewish person saved on the day of Pentecost, and then all of a sudden you went back to your house, you didn't necessarily have the letters of Peter and Paul and James. You didn't have the full canon of Scripture to inform how you're supposed to live, how you're supposed to function in the church, what you're supposed to be all about. You didn't have those things. You, you did the best you could to live out your faith, but you were kind of separated from really the epicenter of the Christian movement that was going on. Now, over time, letters began to spread and instruction began to come about. But these are the early days of the church. I mean, if we assume Jesus was crucified somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D., and this letter is written in 45 A.D., I mean, we're talking 12 to 15 years after the resurrection. This is early days of the church. And so here they are dispersed. They're not connected and as a result, they kind of begin to fall into the habits of the culture around them. You know, they're living in very heavily prominent Roman societies where people have different morals and different values. 
even amongst their own Jewish brethren who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, they would have faced social persecution, sometimes physical persecution. And man, if you're going to live a life as a Christian in this time period and in this culture, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Because as the Romans are partying the way the Romans party, you're not going to partake. And as you sit in synagogue with your Jewish brothers and sisters, well, all of a sudden they're going to be proclaiming, and you're going to stand up and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb, and that's going to lead to some consequences. And, you know, sometimes it's easier just to kind of sit back and be quiet. It's funny how we find ourselves in the same situation today. You know, we look at Christianity in our country, and we look at Christianity in our world, and we really are believers part of a dispersion. We are sprinkled throughout a very godless culture in our day. And you know what? As we live a life for Christ, and as we live out the principles listed in Scripture for us, we should stick out too. We should be different because our citizenship, our primary citizenship, is not that of the United States of America. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And so in doing so, we don't get to live life like everybody else. We don't get to uphold the same values as everybody else. In fact, as Christians, we don't even have the right to decide what values we're going to uphold and what values we don't. Because the basis of our understanding and the basis of the life we live is not our own personal feeling or opinion. It is the word of God. And I'll tell you what, you start to live your life based on the word of God and the principles therein, you're going to look different than your neighbor. You're going to look different than the rest of the people of this community because we are called to live differently. And you know what? Being a part of the dispersion that way, the fact that we are dispersed, means sometimes doing so is really hard. Because every single day you step out of your house and you are bombarded with different messages from our culture. You are bombarded with different ideals. You are bombarded with different values. And as you rub against those values day in and day out, the world is pressing you into the mold that it wants to shape you in. Which is why we come back to the word of God daily. Which is why we sit before the word of God daily so that we can literally be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So that we can be pressed into a different mold, a mold that looks like Jesus. But, you know, sometimes it's really hard and it's tempting to give in. And that's why James goes on in the next verse. And he says something really interesting. In verse 2 of the scripture, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So we're to count it all joy as we meet different trials living in a pagan place, living in a pagan society. We're to count it joy as we face trials of various kinds. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I normally kind of think about this verse or look at this verse and I think, okay, count it as joy when you face trials of various kinds, my head goes to the idea when we think of the word trials, it goes to the idea of like, okay, when bad things happen in life. So when bad stuff happens, I'm supposed to count it joy because I know God's got a bigger plan and God's at work and all those kinds of things. 
That's not the full nuance of this word trials. See, when you look at the word trials in the original Greek, it actually carries an idea of not just bad things happening to you, but a trial as in a test. Even more specifically, it carries the nuance of an enticement to sin. So what James is really writing in this passage is he sits there and says, you need to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet different enticements and temptations in your life. See, as we live in the world that we live in, we're enticed to sin all the time. We're enticed to sin whenever we are to put any kind of value that our culture has above what God's revealed in his word. Every morning when you wake up and you have those decisions to make where you can say, okay, I can either spend my morning growing closer to the Lord or I can take a portion of my day in the morning, the afternoon, evening, whenever it is. I can take that and I can commit it to reading the Bible and praying and orienting myself and making sure that I'm being pounded into the mold of Jesus and not the mold of this world. I can do that. Or man, there's a pull in me that says, oh, it's just a waste of time and I really don't have the time for it today. I need to go on and do something a little more important. That's one of those moments where you are facing the trials of various kinds. And you can either steadfast and stand fast in what the Lord has told you to do, or you can give in to the temptation to sin. You know, maybe you're sitting there and, and you're sitting with a group of people and some kind of information has come your way throughout the past week. And not just general information, but information about what someone else has been doing or what someone else hasn't been doing. And you're sitting there in a group of people, maybe even at church, and you sit there to yourself and, oh, you get that feeling that you just want to share the stuff you know. And it's not uplifting and it's not kind, and it's not gracious, but oh man, it'll spark a conversation, and you'll get to spend the next 15, 20 minutes talking about something really interesting, and you get that urge to share that with somebody, that's facing the trials of various kinds. Or maybe you're sitting in your house by yourself, family's gone off somewhere, and you're absolutely alone, and you can do whatever you want, and all of a sudden, all these different ideas and thoughts start racing through your head, and you know that the train of thought you're about to follow isn't going to lead you anyplace good, and it's not going to lead you to do anything good, that's when you're facing the trials of various kinds. Or maybe you're in the workplace, and someone begins to kind of make a comment or ask a question that would open the door for you to be able to share the gospel or at least tell someone about your faith. And you sit there and think to yourself, no, I shouldn't do that. I'm at work. I don't have time. I should be doing something else. That's facing the trials of various kinds. See, James is writing to a group of people where every day they're living in a culture so different than their own. And they're going to be enticed and they're going to be pulled and they're going to be tempted to sin before the Lord. And they face the trials of various kinds day in and day out. So do we. The odd thing about this passage is not the fact that we face temptation and we face trials and testing, but it's that James says that we are to count it all joy. I mean, can you imagine sitting there when, when you are tempted to wander off the path that the Lord has set for you or that you are tempted to go and sin in some way? If you sit there and think to yourself, hot dog, here we are again. This is so exciting and this is so good. I've got this temptation here. 
I don't think that's what James is trying to tell us. But what James wants us to do is he wants us to change our perspective. He wants us to change our perspective when we face temptation because he wants us to understand what's really happening behind the scenes. See, we are to count it joy, my brothers, when you face the trials of various kinds. For, in verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. See, when we feel that temptation coming forward, when we feel that trial coming forward, when that difficult period enters our life and suddenly we've got a choice where we can say, look, I can either handle this in a way that is godly and holy and just, or I can do something maybe that's easy and convenient. When we have those moments arise, we as Christians should stop for a minute and we should say, what is going on here? Because, you know, as I stand in this moment, in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this temptation, I understand that this is the opportunity that God has allowed in my life to build my faith. And in the midst of that temptation and in the midst of that trial, if I can stand firm, if I can resist, well, then what I have just done is I have strengthened my faith, my faith in midst of adversity. And it's kind of like when you go and you begin the process of exercising. You, know, you sit there and maybe you want to lift weights or maybe you want to run or maybe you just want to do some kind of routine, whatever it is. I don't know about you, but like this new like new year and resolutions people make, it's a really common one trying to get in shape. If you've ever gone and like done some kind of like exercise or strenuous activity after like an entire year of just like couch surfing, I'll tell you what, that first run is miserable. Like you go off and you sit there and you think, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to run a mile. And you get about, you know, a tenth of the mile down the road and you're like, well, I'm going to die. <laughs> this is horrible. This is miserable. This is awful. Why did I even sign up to do anything like this? But then all of a sudden, what happens the next time? It gets a little bit easier. It's not perfect. It's still miserable and you still want to die sometimes. But you sit there and you keep going, you keep doing it. And if you're consistent with that progress, what you see happen is that time and time again, you become stronger. You're able to run farther. You're able to run faster. You're able to lift more. And then the daily activities that you're performing in your life become easier. All of a sudden, when the things that you are doing, carrying in groceries, moving things around the house, whatever it is, those things become easier because now you're stronger and you're more capable and able just to handle the daily trials of life. That's what happens in our faith. See, as we are presented the trials and temptations of various kinds, and they are various coming at us at all different times, different ways, different manners from different people, as we face them and we stand firm in them, understanding that this is the method that which God is using to build our faith, we can count it as joy. So when temptation comes our way, instead of fretting and sitting there and wrestling with it and thinking, oh, there's this thing that I want to do or this thing I don't want to do, and we wring our hands and we question and we say, oh, how am I going to get through this? I know I don't want to do it, but I'm probably going to fall. Instead of fretting that way, what if we sat there and we said, wow, look what God's doing in my life. Look at what God has brought into my path to make me stronger in my faith. Look what God has brought my direction so that that way I can experience true steadfastness. And then all of a sudden as I do that again and again and again 
and again. The temptations and the sins that used to grip us and have a hold on us suddenly are so inconsequential in our life that, man, the rest of our life in faith is easier to navigate. See, we need a change of perspective when we are tempted. We need to consider it joy. Not because the thing that is tempting us is good, and not even the fact that enduring the temptation is easy, but we consider it all joy because we understand what God is doing behind the scenes. We understand that no temptation has touched us that God has not already sifted through his fingers. And that anything that is allowed to take place in our life, God has allowed for his will, his purpose, and his glory. And he allows these things to take place in our life so that we may experience a steadfastness of faith. Because that steadfastness, that idea that when temptation comes, that we become to the point where we are just rock solid, and we sit there and temptations come our way, we recognize what they are, we process it, and then we set them aside, and we move on in the righteous life that God has called us to live. As we become better and better and better at that, there's a process taking place, and there's a result that occurs in our life. Because in verse 4, James writes, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the words perfect and complete there are really interesting because they're two different words. He's not just saying the same thing over and over again. When he talks about the word perfect, it really means the idea of fully formed or mature. You know, you, you look at your children as they grow, and eventually they hit a point where they stop growing. They have become perfect, mature, fully grown. That's the aspect in this word perfect that James is using. And the word complete literally means whole, not missing any parts, not missing any pieces, but whole and intact. So understand what that means is that as we sit here now and we face different trials and we face different temptations in this life that test the genuineness of our faith, as we sit here now, we are not mature in our faith. We are not whole and complete. There's something still lacking and something and still missing. And the mechanism that God has used and decided to use to complete the process of our sanctification is trials, is testing. He allows these things to happen to us so that we may mature and grow in our faith. Yeah, it's one of the beautiful things about living a life following after Jesus. It's because, you know, there's, there's all these other religions and there's all these other belief systems and they all boil down really to the same thing. There is a deity or there is a God in the sky and he is keeping tallies of all the things that you have done. And man, if you don't do more good things in your life than bad things in their life, you are in trouble. And then you come to Christianity, and the message is so radically different. Because the message of Christianity is that, hey, guess what? You're already in trouble. And there's no amount of good you can do to set the balance, and there's no amount of good that you can pour out that's all of a sudden going to make God accepting of you. There's nothing that you can do or accomplish that suddenly is going to make you mature and perfect and complete. It's just not going to happen. 
But you know what? Christ did something that you could never do for yourself. Because while you were in sin, Christ came to this place. He lived your perfect life, and he died your death. And in exchange, he gave you his righteousness, his holiness, and his purity. And that's what we call this idea and this process of imputed righteousness. The righteousness is not ours. The goodness is not ours. Our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. But the righteousness of Jesus, that's credited to me. And that's credited to all those who believe. And so now as we stand before God, it's not as though we lived this perfect life trying to earn his affection. His affection is already so great that he died for us. But no, we live this life and we experience these trials because by the grace of God, he looks at us in our condition and he says, hey, I've got better things for you. I've got better things for you because you're my child and you belong to me and I bought you with the shed blood of my son. And so because I love you so much, I'm not gonna let you stay where you are, but I'm gonna shape you, and I'm gonna mold you, and I'm gonna let you continue to grow, and I'm gonna let you continue to mature, and I'm gonna keep on going at that process until you are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's what I'm gonna do for you because I love you. And that's the Christian life we experience. That's why we get to count it all joy as we face the trials of various kinds. Because we understand that our Father is good. We understand that our Father wants good things for us and that the ultimate good thing he wants for us is that we look like Jesus. You know, I have four kids that live in my house. And I think of the things that their mother and I do to provide for them and to care for them and to help them grow and to help them mature. And you know, sometimes it's a lot of work. Sometimes it's really inconvenient having four children. But you know what, as we live, we do all these things, not because of who they are now. I mean, you look at Lily, she's five years old. She hardly knows anything. She can't really do all that much. She can do a whole lot more than she could when she was like two. It's getting a lot easier as far as that goes. But man, we look at these kids and we look at who they are and, and their mother and I have a perspective that they don't have because we can see down the line to the people who they can become, to the people who they can be. And they're not there yet. There's some things they need to learn. There are some ways that they need to develop. There are some skills they need to obtain so then, then we can send them out in this life and they can do great things for the glory of God. But you know what? They're not there yet. But you know what we do? We give and we love and we let them have experiences. We let them see things. We let them experience things. We let them struggle. We punish them when they step out of line because we hate them and we want their lives to be miserable? Of course not. It's because we love them and we understand that it is the shaping and molding that we do here and now that's going to offset the rest of the course of their life. And that's what God does for us. God allows us to struggle because he knows that it develops character and it develops a steadfastness of faith. 
He punishes us when we step out of line because he understands that it is good for us and he loves us too much to withhold a rod. And the beautiful thing about all this is that God understands what the end goal is. God understands what the destination and the result of those trials and those temptations. And it's not defeat. It's not death. It's not punishment, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but it is life eternal in his kingdom when we are miraculously changed and transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. See, all of this is working to that day when we stand before him perfect, holy, pure, and complete. When our faith becomes our eyes. And we no longer have to wonder or question, but we know fully as we are fully known. And we stand in the presence of our Savior, being able to see the lines on his face and the holes in his hands. And in that moment, the fulfillment of what James is talking about here will take place. We will be perfect, mature, fully grown, complete, lacking in nothing. That's the eternal state for the believer. So if you're sitting here now and you think to yourself, man, this Christian life is a struggle. I live day in and day out and I fall so short of God's standard every single day. And I try, but I fall and I fail. Understand this, that yeah, of course you do. You're not done yet. But there is a promise and there is a hope that one day we will be. And every shortcoming and every failure that you have in this life and the here and now, it's all going to be wiped away. Because one day it is promised that we will look like Jesus. That's why Paul wrote at the end. Paul writes at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says that God works all things out for the good of those who love him in accordance with his will. And that those that he loves, those he cared for, those he foreknew, he predestined to be shaped into the image of his son. It's a done deal. It's going to happen for us. And the trials we experience, it's all part of the process. Praise God for the promises in his word. Praise God that all the suffering we experience is not useless, meaningless, and without cause, reason, or purpose. But it is the intentional experience that God allows us to have so that we can one day look like him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the promises that we find therein. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised us that one day... We will be complete, perfect, made whole. That, Lord, the work of sanctification that we undergo, Lord, we will reach that point where truly we are lacking nothing. So we thank you, Lord, for trials and tribulations. We count it all joy as we face the trials of various kinds because we know that your mighty hand is at work causing us to look like your son. Thank you for this beautiful promise. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.